Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Uh, just one slight uh, change there. We're going to be in the, in the Psalms. If you can open your Bible, Psalm 37. We just needed to give our sister church, Eastern Hills, a chance to catch up to us in Luke. And so we're going to, we preach uh, in tandem with them. And so we're going to be in Psalm 37 today. We're also going to sing this psalm next week. Anybody else excited about that like me? How many people have enjoyed singing the psalms? Give me some kind of, all right. I love that there were that many people who just instinctively reacted that way. It's great to sing God's word to him. I've made this uh, pitch to some of you in email or text or in conversation over the past few months, but especially if you have kids, sing the psalms with your children. I love that I hear my little guys singing Psalm 2 sometimes now because my Soul Among Lions version of Psalm 2 has gotten into their heads. That is so much better than Baby Shark or whatever it is that's on YouTube. We don't have internet at the house, so I'm usually behind the times on what little kids are singing now, but I'm guessing it's not Psalm 2. So uh, Psalm 37, we're going to read this together, and then we'll, we'll uh, examine five truths that God gives us in this psalm, along with the applications that are woven throughout them. All right, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 37 of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy and to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. But the wicked borrows and doesn't pay back. The righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and am now old Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. 
The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he's brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself out like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future. There is a future for the man of peace but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord delivers them and helps them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is God's word. Let me start with a word so you can see here. I'm guessing pretty... Clearly, I don't know how much more clear God could make this. There's a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Did everybody see that just through and through this psalm? I think we understand what the wicked man is, but I think we do need a word on what the righteous man is. The righteous man is not righteous in and of himself. Amen? No one in this room is righteous in and of himself. No one's sweet Christian grandmother is righteous in and of herself. Mr. Rogers was not righteous in and of himself. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The righteous man has righteousness from God, given to him from God. The old reformers called it an alien righteousness, given to him by God through what? Faith. Faith. Romans 4, 3 through 5. The apostle Paul teaches us this plain as day because he knows that we are hard of heart and we are dull of hearing and so he gives it to us about as simply as he could. Romans 4, 3 through 5. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, that's you, saint. That's everyone who will taste this bread and this cup as a born again believer when we're done. To one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He also tells us this in his letter, St. Paul, same apostle, inspired by the same Holy Spirit, tells us in Philippians 3, indeed I, Paul, the apostle, in heaven right now, count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here it is, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The Apostle Paul would allow me to say this to you. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus, if you have truly repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus, you are righteous. Do you hear me on that? We are really uncomfortable with this in 21st century Christianity because we don't want to be seen as arrogant. But it is arrogant to doubt what God did for you through Christ. And to think that somehow you are the one kind of sinner that he can't quite get all the way covered with that imputed righteousness. You are righteous if you have trusted in Christ. We have every reason to be confident. Allow me to, my beard here is getting in the way. I wasn't able to become an engineer like all the other dudes at Christ the King, but I was able to grow a beard. <laughs> Truth number one. There is a kind of wicked people who plot against others and who hurt them, and they especially hate the righteous, which I just told you was you if you're in Christ. But they will be undone by God. These are zealots. This kind of wicked person that this psalm is describing, and it's far from only this psalm, this, this kind of wicked person is described over and over in Scripture, and saint, they hate you. They hate you. 
not because of some personality flaw, but because of the righteousness of God on you. This, is not a simple, this kind of wicked man does not have a simple intellectual disagreement with us about the bodily resurrection of Jesus or a philosophical disagreement about the problem of evil. That kind of sinner is out there, but this kind of wicked man described here is animated by a hatred of God and by a hatred of his ways. They feel about righteousness the way I feel about Star Wars or the way my kids feel about my hatred of Star Wars. This sort of evil, this sort of wicked man, he is a hornet's nest. And your faithfulness to God is a swift kick to his side. This kind of wicked man can be surrendered to, and he can be temporarily placated with flattery, but he will not live and let live. This kind of wicked man conspires, gnashes his teeth at the godly, Wants to, nourishes a zeal for their downfall, wants to see, delights when the next scandal comes out about a pastor or when a church closes. Nourishes a zeal for that kind of thing. So God himself, you see this in the Apostle Paul who wrote what I just read to you about the imputed righteousness of Christ. That Apostle Paul was one of these guys. And God himself can Kill and resurrect a heart like that with totally new loves and totally new affections. But you and I do not have the power in and of ourselves to woo that kind of heart with just the right sweet words and soft skills. It ain't happening. You cannot change what somebody loves by mere human power. The only one who can make you love God is God. And that's what this man needs. He needs to love God and to repent of his hatred of God. We are uncomfortable. I mean all of us. I mean myself too. We are uncomfortable with the reality that there are people who are animated by hatred of your God, Jesus Christ. But this psalm was true circa 1000 BC, and it's true circa 2023 AD. Hear me. If you live like a Christian, if you live like somebody who adores Jesus and wants to please him. There are people out there who will hate you for that. Do you believe me? And some of you have experienced this. And some of you are incredibly sweet and meek Christians. And your default position is to think when that happens, I must have, I must have done something wrong. I must have not said it the way I should have said it. Brother, sister, you can, all of us can, improve your elocution and your speaking skills, I'm sure. But that is not the assumption that you should make if you are speaking plainly the truths of your God. You're going to get hated because there are people who hate him. If you assume, if you walk out into that world and you assume that a faithfully lived Christianity can never produce that kind of animosity, if you assume that if you do it just the right way, that there's no one out there who will despise you, then you'll be, you'll be tempted when this Psalm 37 guy comes your way and does to you what Psalm 37 says he's going to do to you. You'll be tempted to assume that it must have been something you did when the reality is he's gnashing his teeth at you because you're righteous. And if you weren't righteous... And if you didn't speak the true words of the righteous God, he would not gnash his teeth at you. You'll have made this wicked man the judge and his tastes the judge, and you'll have made Christianity and the Bible the defendant. I did that, guys. For much of my life, I basically assumed that the unbeliever was the judge and that he got to dictate whether or not Christianity was good enough for him. And that posture is so ungodly. And so unbiblical. Also notice these guys, what do they do? Do they just tweet? Look at verse 14. What does this wicked guy do? He draws his sword and he bends his bow to bring down the poor and needy and to slay those whose way is upright. There is a particular kind of evil that is violent against Christianity. Literally and metaphorically violent against the God of Jesus Christ. And a Christianity that cannot distinguish between this kind of man who is drawing his sword and bending his bow and the sweet, innocent unbeliever who really does have some questions for you, 
is foolishly exposing itself to harm. The Bible does not cast Demetrius the silversmith in the same light as Cornelius the centurion. You remember those guys from the book of Acts? Demetrius stirring everybody up. They're going to have a riot. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. They want Apostle Paul dead. And then you have the pagan Cornelius, the centurion, who is praying to a God he doesn't know, and God sends the Apostle Peter to him. Or I'll give you two pagan queens from 1 Kings and 2 Kings. The pagan queen of Sheba, she comes to Solomon, and she's got honest questions about Yahweh. And what happens? You may remember? She leaves there with answers and understanding. Different pagan queen at the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 2 Kings, Jezebel, she marries into Israel's monarchy for the sake of cutting off the prophets of Yahweh and God has her executed by Jehu and he has her body eaten by dogs. All sinners are not the same and their posture towards your God is not the same. And if you cannot distinguish between the two, you are setting yourself and anyone that you're responsible for, any Christian that you're responsible for, up for harm. This kind of sinner right here in Psalm 37 is not identical to the lost man who is wounded and genuinely hungry for truth. Just like Caiaphas, the high priest, is not identical to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, right? Or Herod the Great, who killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem, is not the same as Zacchaeus. And it is not evangelism to go to this kind of wicked man and tell him, I understand why you're drawing your sword and bending your bow. Some of the righteous really are too pushy and judgmental. I'm different. I used to do that all the time. Anybody here read Blue Like Jazz back in the day? I love that Alex laughed already. It's, it's, I'm not going to say it's a terrible book, but you can decide at the end of what I'm about to say whether or not it's a terrible book. But it's got this scene in it where Donald Miller, the author, he, uh, he erects this, this booth where they're going to, it's called a confession booth, and it's, uh, in, in this middle of, the middle of this college in Portland, Oregon. Everybody's getting high this one night at this university, and the confession booth, people wander in, and, and it's this big dramatic moment in the book where you think people are going to walk in and he's going to be hearing their confessions, and then you kind of hear like the soft guitar music as you're reading, and no, it's Donald Miller, the Christian, is confessing to them the sins, the past sins of the church. And I remember being so moved by that as a stupid, immature 20-year-old and then doing it. You know what that really was? You know what I was really doing and what I imagine he was doing? That is self-serving flattery and pandering. I'm, I'm different. My church is different. My way of talking to you is different. The podcasts I listen to are different. The blogs I read are different. The things I tweet are different. I'm not like all those other Christians, like my mean grandfather pastor from rural Appalachia who thumped his Bible a little too much. Guys, I did that for years, and I imagine God has covered that sin, that wicked pride with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, but I imagine from heaven that looked as foolish and self-serving as it really was. It's not evangelism to talk to the wicked man like that. Is that how your Bible talks to this sort of wicked man? Look at what God does in verse 13. We are so uncomfortable with verse 13. Are we not? Read it. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Our American 2023 sensibilities have no category for that. You know how many times we sing a psalm in my house, and I, I blush a little bit and tense up because we're getting to a part that I can't believe is really in the Bible? still to this day, that's because my mind and my feelings have been discipled by the world 10 times more than they've been discipled by God's word. My feelings are more in line with self-help and TV shows and classes that I took in college than they are with God's word. My default feelings and assumptions are ones that I heard on network TV or read in secular blogs or heard in secular podcasts. When we read through these psalms and we try to speak and sing like the actual psalms in the Bible and we get really uncomfortable, it's exposing that our thoughts and our beliefs and our assumptions have been trained by the world and less by the Bible than they should have. The Lord laughs at the wicked. All right, let me bring this light to bear on the present day a little bit, that there's these, this category of wicked person who hates, who hates the church, hates God, hates Christianity. In our day, 2023 America, 
There is a constellation of ideologies that hate the church, hate faithful Christianity, and hate people. I got three or four, if I remember right, incredibly blasphemous images sent to King's Domain as we were advertising for the conference. How much you want to bet if the Muslim school down the street put on a conference that they would not get the same sort of blasphemous images sent to them? But why? Why did our church get such things? Why, when I'm out in front of Planned Parenthood with uh, Christians who are just silently praying, do we hear things shouted at us? Why in 2020, where there churches, where the pastor was jailed for the church gathering, when pot shops and casinos were open and raking in the cash. It's not arbitrary, guys. There is a sort of animosity that faithful Christianity will always elicit. Words like these in Scripture remind us there is actual contempt for God and truth and his righteousness that arrays itself against God and his people in different forms and throughout history. And I did not have a category for this as a young man. I, I assumed the world was a morally neutral place filled with morally neutral people who were, in some vague sense, dead in their sins and trespasses. But that, for the most part, I was going out into a marketplace of ideas, and if I was a good enough salesman, I mean, I would have had more spiritual language for this, right? I wouldn't have said salesman. I would have found some Christianese way of saying it that made me less fleshly. But if I, if I say it in just the right way out there, of course they're going to believe, because I'm a nice guy, right? I'm not like Jerry Falwell. They'll believe if I say it the right way. And it's not. Psalm 37 is just one of thousands of reminders in Scripture. It's not a morally neutral world. And we're not interacting with morally neutral people. There are so many thousands of hearts in this tri-state area who are animated against God. And we want them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we not? Do we not? But we want them to repent by laying down their arms against our God. They are traitors. And many of them are traitors who want our church and want your children. So many of us are parents of young kids. And one of the reasons this matters so much, guys, is this Psalm 37 man, he is coming for your babies. They do not want us to have Christian households that glorify God in a multi-generational way. We need to treat the wicked man of this psalm, the way the psalm would have us treat him, which is to call him to repentance against the God he's rebelling against. But we're also allowed to delight in the fact that, look at verse 15, look at verse 15. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Spurgeon says this, malice outwits itself. It drinks the poisoned cup which it mixed for another and burns itself in the fire which it kindled for its neighbor. Why need we fret at the prosperity of the wicked when they are so industriously ruining themselves while they fancy they are injuring the saints? It's a great quote. I can give it to you in shorthand. There's a, there's a good song by a lady named Jess Ray. I think she played in this building in the last couple of years. Uh, but if you're into music and you like folksy kind of stuff, look up... Uh, Gallows, the song Gallows by Jess Ray. But in it, she describes one of my kids' favorite stories in the Bible, which is the story of Esther. And particularly in this song, she's talking about what happened to Haman. Does anybody know where I'm going with this? Haman, who hates, hates God's people. He's Psalm 37 through and through. Hates them. And so he has these gallows erected for Mordecai, the godly Jew in King Ahasuerus' court. And what happens to Haman? at the end of the story. The gallows that he intended for Mordecai, God's man, he gets hanged on. And Mordecai becomes second in command in the whole kingdom. The job Haman had. And guys, that's exactly what happened to Satan. He's stirring up Judas to betray the innocent son of God, right? And he's stirring up the crowds to request Barabbas be released instead of the innocent Christ. And what happens by all that stirring, that scheming? Our salvation happened by it, right? The crucifixion, which was a weapon that Satan tried to wield against my God, turned out to be the thing that severed the shackles he had on my ankles. Our God loves to use the wicked's very weapons against them. Our God loves to use the wicked's very weapon against them. And we are allowed to sing a gloriously joyful song about the sword-wielding arm of this kind of wicked man being broken. You know how I know you're allowed to sing that joyful song? 
He wrote it for you. There's a 150 song hymn book in the middle of your Bible that has dozens of songs like this one. And I realize that they sound weird to us sometimes, but that's because we have too many Jesus is my girlfriend songs. Tell me you haven't had that thought before. Michael encouraged us, I think it was Michael this week, say the thing out loud that everybody else is thinking. Beloved, you are allowed to sing this gloriously joyful song. I want to. We're going to go to Burkina Faso, hopefully in 2023. We're going to adopt a kid. I read the other day, my wife's downstairs, if she's listening to this. I hope she doesn't get too scared. There was a kidnapping in Burkina Faso uh, earlier this week, I think. Um, this happens in Nigeria, too. Fulani Muslims and Boko Haram, these terrorist groups, they'll kidnap people and they'll hold them for ransom. I am allowed, I am encouraged, I am admonished by scripture to sing about the glorious day when all of that is done and every unrepentant wicked arm that raised itself against a Christian or against God's holy people or against God's ways is snapped like a twig. Truth number two, and I'll speed through these, these other four. Truth number two, fretting because of evildoers is foolish because... Neither they nor their evil lasts forever. You don't need to fret over this kind of evildoer any more than you need to fret over a migraine or a sinus infection or a late February cold snap. It's going to end. This wicked man will fade. His schemes will fade. All his schemes will be dust, dust beneath the feet of Jesus. The evils that scare you are real, okay? They're real. But they are also temporary. They're seasonal. And someday they'll be about as harmful to you as a bag of dead leaves or grass clippings. They are going to be cut. These evildoers will be cut off. We don't fret as Christians because we know the story that we're in, even if we don't know whether we're on page 3 or page 403. For all I know, we could still be in the early church. I have no idea. I have no idea. But what I do know is that the author who is telling this story is a good and wise and providential and merciful author. And we are, me and the wicked man, are standing on his blood-bought ground. He owns this world. And he is deciding everything that happens. I love in the story of Esther when Ahasuerus, the king, he's laying in bed and he has this random thought that he wants a story read to him. So the guy comes in and reads him the story, one of his servants, and that's the, that's the beginning of the end for Haman. In other words, my God decides what Joe Biden will dream about tonight. Do you get that? Like, why am I so fretful? I want to fight. I want to fight. I want to pray. I want to preach. But I am not going to have sweaty palms and biting my nails. Oh, my goodness. What, what's going to happen in 2024? You know what's going to happen in 2024? Whatever Yahweh decides will happen in 2024. I love in the, in the books of the Bible, you've got the exilic books, right? Where So Ezra and Nehemiah and Jeremiah and Haggai and Zechariah, God's people are sent away for 70 years. And if you're above the age of 20 when that happens, you ain't never coming home. But he promises through Jeremiah that at the end of that 70 years, they're going to come back. And God's going to help them lay the foundation for the temple. And Nehemiah is going to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And if I'm going away at the age of 20 or 30 or 40, and I know I'm never going to get to see home again, but my grandkids are going to get to see it, and Yahweh's still going to be governing the world and the affairs of men, I am good. I mean, it stinks that I'm never going to get to go home again, but my God wins. So let's go. Pack up, honey. Look at verse 10. In just a little while, just a little while, even if it's not in your lifetime, saints, look at verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. That Planned Parenthood that I tell my kids about and that we pray for the end of when we drive by it on Auburn Avenue on the way to Michael's house for Citigroup. Someday that sucker is going to be gone. They will have killed their last baby. You hear me? You praying for it too? And in that spot where they used to house bloodshed, you're going to see Isaiah 11, 8 through 10 happening, where the infant is playing with the cobra, and the cobra doesn't want to bite because it's God, God's world, and he's remade it. Verse 35 through 36, look at what these guys do. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. 
This is one of the foolish things about this kind of wicked men. They always think they're going to last forever. I read a biography of Hitler a couple years ago. The guy thought he was immortal, essentially. They always think that they're going to last forever. They spread themselves out like a green laurel tree. But what, what kind of plant does Psalm 37 say they actually are? Grass. You know what the lifespan of grass is? These guys spread themselves out like they're going to live forever or like we're living on their land, in their garden. And they're not. They're not in charge. And they aren't going to last forever. The sex traffickers, the fentanyl dealers, those who ruthlessly prey on the poor or the widow or children, they will be gone someday. And their little plastic empires will be melted by the wrath of God. Amen? And by the way, I would have been melted with them if God hadn't been gracious to me. Psalm 3, uh, verses 3 through 7, this is the third truth. David gives us four Yahwehs there. Whenever you see in your English Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the English transliter translators transliterating Yahweh or Jehovah, God's name. And so David gives us four things that we're to do towards Yahweh or that the righteous man is to do or be towards Yahweh. I'll go through them quickly. In the midst of this kind of wicked man's assault, arrows flying right around our head, we are to trust, we are to delight in, we are to commit our way to, and we are to be still before Yahweh, God. We are to trust in him. So he says there that trust in the Lord will bring about our dwelling in the land, our doing good, and our befriending faithfulness. Just quickly on doing good. When you trust God, when you actually have confidence that God is wise and that he can tell you what's right and what's wrong, your playbook is written for you. And so doing good becomes infinitely simpler. My schizophrenic 2023 America changes its definition on what is good every three months, it seems. Right? But the character of God is immutable. Truth is always good because Yahweh is truthful. Love is always good because he is merciful and gracious, right? So trusting in God allows me to do good because I know what good is and I know who I'm modeling myself after. He also says to dwell in the land. Let me just say one thing about that. David tells, and the Holy Spirit through David tells Israel to dwell in the land by trusting in Yahweh. They had a geographic territory that they were promised. And we do not have a geographic territory that we are similarly promised, right? But 1 Timothy 3.15 does say we have a household that we can similarly dwell in. Dwell in, not reside in. He doesn't say, hey, Israelites, have an address in Canaan. He says dwell, which means build households, plant trees, do good things, build things, right? Build a temple, have a priesthood, have sacrifices and offerings. We don't have a promised geographic territory like that, but we do have a household. What is our household, 1 Timothy 3.15? The church. And we can dwell here in this church as saints, and we can build things with the same trust and then it also brings about faithfulness. He says, befriend faithfulness. If you're like me, your morning uh, cup of coffee needs to be prayer. You need to ask God, Lord, help me to be faithful today. I need that every morning. He says to delight ourselves in Yahweh, delight ourselves in the Lord, and he'll give us the desires of our heart. In the middle of this wicked man's assaults, we are to make ourselves happy in God. Saints, we should not be dour. We should not be always angry or shrill, Right? Do we, do we have something to be joyful about? We are to delight ourselves in God. And the more we delight ourselves in God, the more he gives us the desires of our heart. Why? Because our hearts are now desiring him. And the more you desire God, the more you receive the desires of your heart because he is infinitely beautiful and infinitely glorious. And by the way, some of you need to hear this. We all, uh, not all, some of us of the more analytical bent believe we are far more objective than we really are, right? That we can just arrive at the truth objectively with pure rational analysis. There is no human like that who has ever lived. We desire things. We crave things. We want security and joy and hope. So the question is not whether you will have desires and whether those desires will motivate you. The question is not whether you'll have loyalties and allegiances and cravings. The question is, what will you crave? And we want to delight ourselves in Yahweh. Delight yourself in Yahweh. God does not need an army of cold analytical accountants in heaven going, holy, holy is the Lord. That's a typewriter for those of you who are under 30. <laughs> God Almighty. 
The angels are glorious in their song. That's us. We're to delight ourselves in Yahweh. We're to commit our, ourselves to Yahweh. Resolve to obey the God who acts. He says, commit your way to Yahweh, trust in him, and he will act. We're not deists, right? We don't believe God just kind of wound the universe up and set it going, and now we're on our own. Better follow the rules and hope things work out. He is doing things all the time in this room right now. He's keeping all of our hearts beating. God is acting and he will bring forth, it says, he will bring forth his people's righteousness and justice. Your cause will, if you have been unjustly persecuted, accused, fired, slandered, God will bring forth your cause. He is not the kind of father who's like, I just let them work it out on their own. Football game's on. Mom will take care of it. He keeps your tears in a bottle. And he will bring your cause to justice. And by the way, he'll bring, if I have sinned against my brother or sister, that didn't go unseen either. And I need to trust that he'll bring what I've done. Every, every thought that I've had in here, every little whisper I've made that was gossip, It'll be shouted from the rooftops. Our God records it. He knows it. And all justice will be done. And then be still. He says, be still before Yahweh. Our stillness before the Lord in this way is not deep breathing exercises. It's not yoga. We are to be still because we trust the God who governs the affairs of men. Uh, number, truth number three here. Three or four. I didn't put the numbers on my manuscript. The Lord provides for his righteous ones. We're winding down. The Lord provides for his righteous ones. Why does the righteous have abundance and famine? We're not prosperity gospel people, right? We don't believe that our 403Bs or our 401Ks are just going to always go up because we're Christians. So why is it that we have abundance and famine? It's because the righteous are the chosen portion of God. They are actively protected and provided for by the teller of the story we're in. You know, in the Lord of the Rings, not in the movies. The movies are good. But when I read the books, there's a lot in the books that wasn't in the movies. Has anybody read the books? Tom Cantwell, I know, has probably read those books. One of the many parts that are really, really sweet in the books is that towards the end you realize that the Shire has been content and happy and blissful because the Aragorn-type rangers have been protecting it for generations and never telling anybody. Right, so all these hobbits, they're going about their lives and brewing their beer and having their birthday parties and gardening and doing all their stuff. And they have no idea that out there in the woods, fighting all the bad guys and keeping it going are these rangers. Do you know how many times God has done that for me and you and we don't even know it? You know how many arrows haven't pierced your chest that should have if God didn't care for you? You will inherit the world, Mequin. You will inherit the world. My wife has a, uh, has a grandmother who I, I pray as a Christian, we pray for frequently, and she's never seen the ocean. And I thought of when I, when I read this over and over again about inheriting the earth, which is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody knows this lady, right? Nobody knows the your Christian grandmother in Appalachia or the little Christian kid at some school around here who's getting mocked every day for believing in Jesus. Nobody knows these people except the God who will give the world to his saints at the end of all things. The last will be first. I heard somebody say it one time, we're walking around Disney World basically with the last name Disney. This is all gonna be ours because our God has adopted us and owns it. We're not Buddhists, guys. We're not just sitting here under a tree, like, trying not to crave things. Be joyful. The, God throws a party at the end of all things. And there's a seat at that party, at that table, that's got your name on it that nobody can erase if you're a Christian. Nobody. I don't care how much they hate you. I don't care how overlooked you are at work. I don't care how much strife you have in your family because you're a Christian. There's a spot at the never-ending party at the end of all things that you cannot miss. You will not miss. God will get you there. Everything good and worthwhile that you lack now, Psalm 37 says you'll receive. Everything that you have lost will be restored. There are bruises that you haven't gotten yet, and there is suffering that you haven't endured yet. But at the end of all things, you'll look back, and all that pain, all that persecution, all that suffering, all that hardship, whatever it was, whatever manner it took, 
it'll look like the brief season that it was because eternity is very long. Let me give you one last way here real quick before moving on to the final truth. One last way that he preserves his people, that he blesses the righteous and upholds their inheritance. It's verses 25 through 29. I want to read it to you, and I just want you to be settled in this as a Christian because we're not, we in the Baptist and non-denominational worlds, I think, are bad at claiming these promises and living in light of this truth. Verses 25 through 29. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good so you shall dwell forever for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Walk in righteousness, verse 25. Lend generously, verse 26. Turn away from evil and do good, verse 27. And you can confidently entrust the latter days of your children to the God who loves to preserve the heritage of his saints. Do we have a universal guarantee that all our kids will be saved? It's a simple answer. No, you guys know that, right? No, we don't have a universal guarantee. But we also know that in the hundreds of passages that God has put into his inspired word like this, he ain't saying nothing right? It means something, does it not? There is a pattern that God has hardwired into the world, and he's describing it in passages like this. Acts 2.39, for the promise, this is Peter in the new covenant preaching the gospel, and part of the gospel he preaches, part of his altar call, Acts 2.39, for the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone from whom the Lord calls, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. First Corinthians 7:14 says that a believer's children are in some sense holy. There are if you if you have kids under the age of 10, you're aware of this. You see the same videos on the internet that I see in the few times I use my phone to look at the internet. They're after kids. There is a subset of the wicked that wants to destroy the innocence of children and wants to use their flesh for its own sexual gratification. There is. And God will not ignore or be blind to your children. He knit them together in your womb. In, in your womb, wife, mother, he knit your children together. And he doesn't do that tenderly and then put them in a Christian home to hear the gospel preached, and then listen to the tearful mother's prayers and grandmother's prayers and father's prayers and uncle's prayers and other believing children's prayers, and then say, well, you know, they're on their own. Why do we do baby dedications? We don't dedicate other kinds of unbelievers, right? Unbeliever comes in the door, we're not like, hey, come on up, be dedicated. Right? Somebody's going to watch, some Pentecostal church somewhere is going to watch that clip and be like, we should do that. <laughs> Why are we doing that? It's a faithful application of something the Bible does lay down as a pattern in God's world. God's world. God could have decided he would just make human beings out of thin air and then drop them into your houses. Or the stork thing, right? He could have done that. He's God. He chose to make them this way through his believers. All right. Last truth, and then I'll close. Last truth, verses 30 through 31. The righteous man has a mouth speaking wisdom. He has a heart that houses God's law, and he has feet that don't slip. The righteous man's mouth speaks wisdom and justice. Unlike the wicked man, the righteous man fears God, and therefore he can have wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. doesn't say they ignore wisdom and instruction. doesn't say they, eh, you know, I think the Koran might have something to say. I'll check that out for a little bit. They despise wisdom and instruction. The great tell for whether you are a fool is how you feel about the Bible. The wicked man will often think he has wisdom and speaks justice. He may think he knows how to do what's right and apply what's good to life and to the wider world. But what does Proverbs 9.10 say is the essential ingredient of wisdom, the essential non-negotiable ingredient to wisdom? Fear of the Lord. You don't fear the Lord, you don't have wisdom. And, in case that weren't clear enough for us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.20 and 
that the world's so-called wisdom is what to God? Foolishness. Foolishness. How many foolish things I learned in college? I flunked out at UC after a couple of years. But while I was there, racking up debt that I'm still paying off, I went back to school and got an undergrad later, but there were so many foolish things I learned. It doesn't mean that everything that came into, me, into my mind from these unbelievers was useless. But the overarching worldview was foolish because the overarching worldview had no fear of the Lord. The righteous man's tongue will speak true wisdom and true justice, not the perverted partiality that the wicked calls justice and not the fatal foolishness that is made to sound plausible and profound. Reproductive justice. Well, you mean murdering babies is what you mean when you say reproductive justice, right? What wisdom do you default to speaking, saint? Do you default to speaking the ones that you've heard in the secular world, on podcasts, in textbooks? Is that where your mind first goes when a problem comes up, when you're talking to somebody about the world? Does it first go there? Or does true wisdom and true justice from God's word flow out of your mouth? I'm not there yet, but I want to be because I've got six souls that I'm accountable for. God's law is the proper school for our sense of what is fair and what is right, and God's spirit is the proper teacher. God's law is the proper school for what is fair and what is right. And too many of us think we can correct God's law, or that maybe the world's a little smarter than God's law, even though we're too, we're too shrewd to say it that way. But that's how we feel. We need to repent of it. He holds God's law in his heart. Just one more, or two more little characteristics, and I'll pray. He holds God's law in his heart. The righteous man holds God's law in his heart. Every single one of you and me is a referee. Did you know that? We've all got our rule book in here. And when somebody violates it, we throw the flag. In, ah, intentional grounding. He said something offensive, hurt my feelings. Holding. And we throw those flags so quick, right? And you know what the rule book usually is? It's just our feelings, our assumptions about what's good. And the godliest men that I know, I won't say their names right now because I want to keep them humble and they probably wouldn't like it because they're godly men. But there are a few of them in this room. And one of the things I notice about them is they are constantly going to God's word, constantly, not in an obnoxious way. I'm just saying that's what they default to. They're pulling it out of their pocket. They're opening up, pulling it out of their briefcase. They're praying it. When they pray, their prayers for our lunch sound like a psalm and not like a Joyce Meyer book. You know why? Because a righteous man who is satisfied in and delighting in God just wants more of God's word. He holds God's law in his heart. And then lastly, he perseveres. There's a kind of falling, a kind of stumbling that the Bible assigns to the wicked man. The righteous man will stumble in a way, James 3, 2. But he will not fall away in the way that's described in Hebrews 6, 6, or that's described as the shipwreck of faith in 1 Timothy 1, 19. God will keep him. God will preserve him. His feet will be kept straight. All right, let me end with this, and I'll, and I'll pray. Um, I think there are three hearts that I'm most, three kinds of heart that I'm most concerned for right now as I was praying this morning and as I was thinking this morning. One, the kind of heart that is genuinely scared and worried about what's happening out there. And I want you to hear that God is in control. He knows. How many of us would have thought in 2019, you know, next year there's going to be some virus that like shuts the world down and we're not going to be able to worship and everybody's going to be scared and schools are going to shut down and businesses are going to get shut down and a bunch of people are going to get laid off and there's going to be stimulus checks that we can use to go on vacation and a hundred other things. Any of you see that one coming? Yahweh knew. And he knows what's coming in 2024, and he knows what's coming in 2030, and he knows what's coming if the Lord tarries in 2060 and 2100. He knows where your deathbed's going to be. He knows what nightmares you're going to have. The evil that you're facing and that you sense and that you taste and that you smell is real. But brother, sister, we are fighting on the side that wins. Not because we're smart or strong. I'm not either of those things. But because Yahweh is in control. Second kind of heart. 
I think there are some people, possibly through good motives, possibly through proud motives. I know my own were proud, but who find this sort of psalm and this sort of sermon and this sort of talk incredibly uncomfortable. And my word to you is you need to have your sympathies chastened by the word of God. If your default posture is to apologize to the world for the church, read 1 John and fall in love with Yahweh and his people. Does that mean the church is perfect? No. Anyone in here perfect? Anyone small group perfect besides Eric's? No. Okay. But God did not wait for his people or for his church to get to some level and then say, and now I'll claim them. I was ashamed until a few minutes ago, but they showered and now I'm ready. We are his people. He's not embarrassed of us. So I'm not going to be embarrassed of us. And the third one, unbeliever, if you are here and you are not born again, you could have the most Psalm 37 wicked heart ever that ever beat a beat on God's green earth. And this gospel is offered to you. My God loves to save bad people. He is an expert, a specialist in saving wicked men and women. Lay down your arms. And if you're a Christian who knows somebody like this, pray as I'm praying, that they will lay down their arms and that God will save them by his grace. Please pray. Our great God and Father, I, don't, I, I have no right to be standing here. I have no right to be reading your word, much less preaching your word, and yet here I am. None of us have any right to be hearing your word or tasting your word or singing your word. And yet because you are gracious and long-suffering and patient and desire that none should perish. You give us time to come to Christ and be saved. And then after we're saved, you give us sanctification upon sanctification upon sanctification by the Holy Spirit. This church is here at 333 Warner because you want people to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve any of that. There is no amount of singing there's no amount of prayer, there's no amount of giving that I could ever do that would be commensurate for what you've done for me. So I'm just gonna say thank you. Thank you, Abba Father. In Jesus' name, amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.